Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us uh, this morning. And so as uh, Dr. Steve uh, just read, we will only be in one verse. And some of you are thinking, great, that means we're going to beat our friends to lunch. That is not the case. We're going to go for the exact same amount of time that we always go. And I want to begin by telling you a story. A few years ago, I was a groomsman in a buddy's wedding, and he was getting married to kind of one of those destination weddings out in uh, a little place called Temecula in Southern California. Uh, Luckily, I had a friend who was uh, employed by Southwest, and uh, and so she got me some uh, buddy passes so Casey and I could fly out there for free. Now, it turned out that that wasn't actually so uh, lucky for us. Our original uh, itinerary was to take us from Dallas to Phoenix to Orange County, the airport there is called John Wayne, and, uh, and so Orange County. But uh, if you've ever uh, had buddy passes from uh, Southwest, then you know that they're kind of like flying standby. And, uh, and so we checked in there at, the, uh, at Love Field, and uh, uh, whenever we checked in, they said, we only have one available seat on the flight. So you have to choose whether or not you want to go ahead and split up or if you want to try to wait for the next flight. So uh, we decided we were going to wait for uh, the next flight. And, uh, and so we sat there, but the next flight was full, and the next flight to Phoenix was full. And so finally, they were able to get us on a flight to uh, Amarillo. Now, typically, I don't recommend going to Amarillo for, for many reasons, but uh, at least it was getting out of Dallas. And, uh, and so we went ahead and flew to, uh, to Amarillo thinking surely there will be a flight from here that will then lead us to Phoenix and then to Orange County. And so we get to Amarillo and sure enough, there was a flight to uh, Phoenix, but it was full. And so we sat there and uh, there's a lot of places where it might be fun to kind of have a bit of a layover. Uh, there's a lot of airports that uh, you might actually have a lot of things to do. Amarillo is not one of those. But thankfully, uh, Casey, my wife, uh, has an aunt that lives in Amarillo, so she just came and picked us up while we were uh, waiting and took us to eat at Cracker Barrel. And so we went and had lunch and uh, then came back to the airport and waited and waited and waited. And finally, there was a flight to Denver, and we thought, uh, this is not really moving the direction that we need, but it is at least getting out of Amarillo, and that's kind of always the goal. And, uh, and so we flew up to Denver, and when we were in Denver... Uh, we decided to grab a little bit of dinner. And, uh, and so we got some dinner there at the airport, found a hair in my food. So a, a, a great day was just getting greater. And, uh, and so from Denver, we then got on a flight to Phoenix. And uh, while we were in Phoenix, they told us that uh, all of the other flights to Orange County were, uh, were basically booked. And so either we're stuck in Phoenix until tomorrow or we could fly to another airport that wasn't Orange County, but was somewhere close to it. And so if you've ever been to the L.A. sort of area, you know there are are a number of airports around there. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to wait for this particular uh, flight that is going to take us uh, to one of the nearby uh, airports. And so we waited and waited and waited and finally got on a flight to Ontario, California, not Ontario, uh, up in Canada. And uh, so it was maybe 30 minutes or so away from Orange County, and uh, the problem was our rental car was back at Orange County. And so even whenever we got to Ontario, we had to wait in line. Long story short, uh, I guess not because I've already told it, but uh, th- we, by the time we actually reached our final destination, it had taken us 23 and a half hours 
to travel all the way out to California. Now, if uh, you're familiar with that drive, Google Maps tell you it will take about 20 hours to make that drive. And so it actually took us longer to fly out to California than it did uh, if we would have just simply driven. The reason I tell you that story is that's kind of like a sermon here at uh, Parkway. Now, don't get scared if you're a visitor. That doesn't mean we're going to be here for 23 and a half hours. We're not going to be here till midnight or something like that. I don't mean that the analogy is kind of like the amount of time that we preach, but rather that sometimes we're preaching a sermon that might cover 13 verses, like last week, and then sometimes we're covering a a text, a, a section of Scripture that's only one verse, as we are doing this week. And, uh, and so what's the reason for that? What's the, why is it that sometimes we're doing 13 verses and sometimes we're doing one verses? Why not just split the difference and do seven verses uh, each week? And so the reason is it, it, it's not uh, happenstance. It's not just a circumstance. Uh, it's not uh, that we're just being arbitrary or something like that. You might think that it's because uh, whenever Zach preaches, it's like this fire hydrant of data. And then rather, I'm kind of like this dripping faucet with this southeast Texas draw. And that might be true, but that's not actually the reason for uh, this sort of uh, seeming discrepancy. Rather, the reason is what we're trying to do is we're trying to allow the natural rhythms, the natural breaks of the text that the author, the divine author and the human author, has embedded into the text And so what we're doing is uh, we're we're breaking up the book of Jonah. There's 48 verses in the entire book. We're going to spend eight weeks in the book of Jonah. Uh, And so we'll average six verses a week. But what's really interesting, I looked at all of those eight weeks, and not one of them will actually cover only six verses. So this week, we're covering one. That's by far the shortest. Uh, Last week, we covered 13. That's by far the the shortest, I mean, the longest. Uh, But in general, we'll stick between 3 and 10. And again, the reason for that is because the authors have uh, kind of embedded a solitary, singular sort of idea, and we want to capture that. So what matters is not the number of verses or the number of sentences, or the number of paragraphs, sometimes a single thought can, keep, can be contained within one verse, sometimes three verses, sometimes ten verses, sometimes an entire chapter. But that's what we're trying uh, to get at. And so last week, the main idea of uh, verses 4 through 16 concerns the consequences of Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And so we saw that the Lord hurls, that's the language, the Lord hurls this uh, storm upon the sea. And then the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea. In a couple of weeks, we'll see that the big fish, in a sense, hurls Jonah. He vomits Jonah back on the the shore. Apparently, raw human doesn't sit well with this fish uh, as well. But today's text, what we want to do is we want to talk about what happens in the midst of this storm, as the storm is calmed, as Jonah is in the midst of the sea, that there is this introduction of this uh, fish. And it's going to highlight the sovereignty of God. It's going to expose Jonah's helpless and hopeless condition apart from grace. So I'm going to spend some time praying, and then no pun intended, we'll dive in uh, together. So let me ask you just to pray for yourself first, that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear if you come in with distractions or you come in with apathy or whatever it is that you're coming and bringing this morning that the Lord would clear away that fog that you might receive his word. And then will you pray that for those around you as well? 
for us as a body that we might collectively behold the grace and glory of God's Word. And then would you pray for me that I might uh, be faithful and steadfast. So, Father, we do ask for your blessing upon our time this morning because you're good and you give good gifts and you've given us the greatest gift in your Son and in your Scriptures that point to Him. And so, may we bask in the glory this morning. We pray these things because you're a good Father who gives good gifts, so we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at our only verse today, Jonah 1.17, which says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if someone were to ask you, what are the top ten stories involving animals in Scripture? Think about it for a second. And think about what are some of the things that would come to mind. Well, obviously, you would have Noah's Ark. You would probably include Daniel in the lion's den. You would probably include Genesis 3, the talking serpent. If you're really familiar with the Old Testament, you might recall that there's a a story in Numbers 22 of a a donkey who speaks. Uh, You might recall from the book of Exodus where Aaron's staff turns into a snake and swallows the other staffs. One of my favorite stories is uh, in the book of 2 Kings, which is uh, when some kids are making fun of Elisha the prophet, making fun of the fact that he's bald, and so the Lord God uh, appoints these 42, I'm sorry, these two she-bears to go and to maul these 42 kids. But nearly everyone, if you're thinking of the lists of the greatest animal stories in all of Scripture, nearly everyone would include this story, Jonah and the big fish, as kind of their number one story in Scripture. Of all the strange zoological stories in Scripture, this is probably the strangest. It it, it really, if you're thinking about it, it stretches the limits of believability, of credibility, we, in, uh, we addressed this as we did an introduction to the book a couple of weeks back, but I want to bring it up again because I think it's really, really important, and we need to wrestle with this question. That is, is this possible? What we're reading about today, is this intended uh, to be historical nonfiction, or is it intended uh, that, that we should classify it as fiction? It's easy for us to, to deny the the historicity of this book. There's a number of ways that we could do that. One way that we could do that is simply to classify this as myth or fable, kind of like Hansel and Gretel or uh, or Goldilocks and the Three Bears or or something like that. It contains some sort of kernel uh, of truth, some sort of moral there, but it's not intended to be taken literally or historically as if uh, this actually happened. Another way that you might do that is to completely allegorize this, uh, this story, to, to minimize, uh, to, uh, if not to negate, the supernatural aspects of it. So uh, one of my favorite attempts to do this throughout church history, to take this story and to turn it into an allegory, uh, is, uh, is by someone who uh, once taught that Jonah was indeed tossed overboard. There was an actual character named Jonah, and he was tossed overboard Uh, But he wasn't actually swallowed by a big fish. He was actually rescued by a boat that was named a big fish. And then he was taken to shore, and he didn't really lodge in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. Instead, he found a tavern 
called uh, the Belly of the Beast, and that's where he stayed for three days and, uh, and three nights. So there's all kinds of ways that you can attempt to minimize or ignore the implications of this text and its historicity and, uh, and its truthfulness. But what's at the heart of all of these different assumptions and all of these different attempts uh, to kind of neutralize the story is the dash of what C.S. Lewis uh, called chronological snobbery. That's his phrase for it, chronological snobbery. In other words, the idea that from the vantage point of modernity, from our modern standpoint, we assume that those ancient peoples were unlearned, they're naive, they're primitive, they, they believe in fairy tales about big fishes and those kinds of things. But in our infinite wisdom, we know better than them. Now, hopefully you can catch in that a hint of uh, of kind of modern arrogance, that we think that we're better than those people. But not only is that arrogant, it also entirely misses the point of this story. The point of Jonah isn't that primitive people thought that someone could actually live in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. The point of the story is that even primitive people knew this is utterly impossible. So when it actually happens, maybe we should pay attention to this person. That's the point of the story, that when God does something that is utterly impossible from our perspective, maybe that is a sign that we should pay attention, as crazy as this story might sound. And let's be honest, this sounds absolutely crazy, the idea that a man is swallowed by a fish and lives in the fish for three days and three nights. I think we can admit that that sounds utterly incredible and unbelievable and crazy, as crazy as it sounds there really was a prophet named Jonah. He really did get swallowed by a fish, and he really was in that fish for three days and three nights, and he really lived to tell the tale. How do we know that this isn't just a myth? How do we know that this isn't intended to be read just as allegory or something like that? A few of the, mention, uh, the reasons that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I want to just uh, remind us of as we prepare uh, for the most sensational aspect, the most sensational text within this book of Jonah. We mentioned before that Christianity has always held that the rest of the Bible is historical. So why not this? There are lots of other incredible stories that we don't simply reject as superstitious or allegorical. So why would we jettison this particular text? Second, we, we mentioned the fact that Jesus references this story. In the Gospels, we'll see that Jesus references not only Jonah as a historical character, but also the events that Jonah goes through. He references the story, and in doing so, he seems to imply its historicity. It's hard to read the Gospel accounts and not come to the conclusion that Jesus viewed this as a historically accurate account, that he, he understood it to be read literally. A third reason is it concerns a real prophet who's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. You'd think that if it was an allegory or a fable or a parable or something like that, that the author would have made up someone rather than using an actual historical character that we, are, uh, that we see elsewhere in, uh, in Scripture. Jonah's mentioned. And then lastly, if it isn't true, it loses all of its power, all of its profundity to us. If this story is just a fable, if this story is just a parable or something like that, it loses all of its power. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you're sitting down with someone 
and you're hearing this incredible fish story about this guy, and he's battling a, a 30-pound bass for hours, all right? By the end of it, you're certain that you're in the presence of one of the great fishermen of the world, the next Jerry Hallbrook, he's a former pastor. Today's the anniversary of his 27th uh, year at, uh, at, uh, at Parkway. And, uh, and so uh, you're in the presence of this great fisherman, but then all of a sudden you find out that this 30-pound pass was actually only about one pound. It wasn't actually caught on a lure. Instead, it died of natural causes. And the guy actually caught it with a net. And then he found out that the reason that it took him hours was because he fell out of the boat and he dropped the net, so he had to go and buy another net in order to pick up this fish. Now, all of a sudden, are you impressed by this fisherman? No, absolutely not, right? This guy seems uh, not like a great fisherman. He seems like a, a, a bit of a klutz. Right? That's kind of what happens if you take out all the supernatural elements of Jonah's story. No longer are you actually impressed by God's omniscience and omnipresence and His sovereignty and His love and His mercy and His grace. Those things all become hypothetical. And there's no power behind hypothetical sovereignty or mercy or grace or whatever it might be. So at the end of the day, What's really behind these attempts to deny the historicity of Jonah is not exegesis, it's embarrassment. Embarrassment at the supernatural. We say this simply seems unbelievable to us, but what kind of God do you serve if you can fully explain Him? If in your attempts to kind of protect Christianity by minimizing the supernatural aspects of Christianity, what Christianity are you left with? There's no supernatural creation of the world. There's no worldwide flood. There's no plagues. There's no exodus from Israel. There's no healing of the blind or the sick or the lame. There's no virgin birth. There's no raising of the dead. Thus, there's no resurrection of Christ. Thus, according to 1 Corinthians, there's no hope, no faith, and no salvation. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't believe in the historicity of Jonah, that you necessarily deny the resurrection of Christ and that you aren't a Christian. I'm simply saying that you have severed a major artery in rejecting the miraculous and supernatural, and you're in danger of bleeding out to theological liberalism. So as sensational, as incredible as this story might seem, the humble, proper, biblical response is to posture ourselves under it and accept it as true, not because we think this sort of thing happens all the time, but instead because in Scripture we're confronted with a God who does what is otherwise impossible. So speaking of doing what's otherwise impossible, let's actually get into the text as we begin with the phrase, and the Lord appointed. Since we only have one verse to work through, we have time to actually stop and ponder individual words, and so I want to ponder the word appointed for a bit. In Hebrew, the word manah can also be translated as a sign or a portion or to supply or to determine. Throughout Scripture, you'll see this Hebrew word again, manah. You'll see the word used of someone who's being appointed or assigned or, uh, or uh, something like that to a particular job or a particular role, as when your boss might appoint you to do a particular task. So there is, in the use of this word, there is a nuance of authority and in Jonah, this word is used four times. It's used once here, and then interestingly enough, it's used three times in three successive 
verses in chapter 4. So let's read that. Jonah 4, 6 through 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So in just this one book, you'll see that God appoints a fish, he appoints a plant, he appoints an insect, and he appoints the wind. In other words, he controls them. He rules over them. It's pointing to his sovereignty. It's pointing to his authority. It's pointing to his providence, his omnipotence. And that's just what we see from this one particular Hebrew word. In addition to that word, there's also all kinds of other hints to God's sovereignty and authority that we see in the book of Jonah. For example, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the seeming coincidence that there just happens to be a boat going the very place that Jonah is wanting to go at the very time that Jonah is wanting to go there. We talked about the fact that uh, oftentimes you might have to wait weeks or even months for a ship that's sailing to the port that you want to go to. So the seeming coincidence is a kind of an implication, this little hint, this little whisper that God is sovereignly behind the scenes. Or the sudden emergence of a tempestuous sea. It seems like a coincidence And yet you see God's sovereignty in that, or the preservation of Jonah in the midst of the fish, or the repentance of the Ninevites. All of these different things are hints, they're clues, they're whispers of God's sovereignty. We talked about this a bit last week, that one of the themes that we encounter in Jonah is an absolutely and utterly sovereign and omnipotent God. Moving beyond just the borders of Jonah and considering the, the boundaries of the Bible as a whole, we read about God's control over weather phenomena such as rain and snow and lightning. It says the, the Scripture says that God is in control of the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars. He's in control of the distribution of food for animals. It says that He's the one who provides the lion uh, its, uh, its prey. He's the one who provides uh, the sparrow its food. He's in control of the life and death of animals, that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from His sovereign will. He's in control of the rise and fall of nations. He's in control of the decisions of the leaders of the nations. Proverbs will say that the king's heart is like a stream of water that God turns whichever way he pleases. God's in control of the times and places in which people live. We see that in Acts 17, that he is in control of the the boundaries of our habitations and the exact time in which we are to live. He's in control of the length of our lives, the fruitfulness of our wombs, even seemingly random occurrences. As we saw last week, the roll of the dice, the casting of the lots, those kinds of things God is even sovereign over. Even the desire and decision of faith. The Bible says that God elects or He predestines those who will trust Christ. And on and on and on we could go. In other words, there is no exception to God's sovereignty. There's no area in all of creation. There's no sphere in all of the realm of God's creation over which God does not exercise 
control. So it should not be surprising, it should not be unbelievable to us that God would appoint a great fish to swallow the prophet unless, of course, we've already begun with a presupposition that such things cannot happen and such a God doesn't actually exist. Now, hopefully you're not, but maybe you are thinking, so what? What is this, why does this matter? Why are we spending all of this time on this one word and this one concept of sovereignty? Why don't we get more practical? Of what use is it for me to know that God rules and reigns over a big fish and a worm and the wind and a plant and those kinds of things? So let me just give you a few thoughts of why it is that you have to wrestle with and rest in the reality of God's sovereignty. I'll give you four reasons why this is not just some academic sort of exercise, but this is profoundly practical for us. Number one, the sovereignty of God provides the anchor in the midst of the storm of suffering. You see, if God is unable to control the circumstances of your life, and He's unable to control the circumstances leading to your suffering, then you're left with just aimlessly sort of drifting along into despair. But if God rules, if God reigns over even these tragic circumstances that you find yourself in, then we can worship. That's the challenge of suffering, as we'll see as we go through the book of Jonah even more. The goal of suffering isn't just to figure out, how do I get out of the whale? The goal, the challenge is to figure out, how do I worship even whenever I'm in it? Even as we'll read next week, that Jonah sings to the Lord from the midst of the belly of the beast. So that's the first reason that the sovereignty of God provides an anchor in the midst of the storms of suffering. The second reason that this is profoundly practical for us is because it affects our anxiety. That's the argument that Christ is going to make in the Sermon on the Mount. In effect, all anxiety is birthed out of this combination of disbelieving that God is good and God is in control. At the end of the day, all of your anxiety, all of your fears... All of them boil down to an area of your life where you don't believe that God can control the circumstances of your life or that God loves you enough to do so. So by wrestling with God's sovereignty, it affects the way that we think about anxiety and fears and the way that we hope and all of those sorts of things. If you believe that He loves you, if you believe that He controls all things, then we have nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious about. Third, it lifts the ceiling of your worship. We say this all the time. Your theology affects your doxology. In other words, your understanding of God is going to affect profoundly your worship of God. The smaller your picture of who God is, the smaller your affections for that God, and thus the smaller your worship of that God. But as we encounter this biblical perspective, not only on God's love, yes and amen to God's love, but also to God's power, to God's authority, to God's omniscience, to God's omnipotence, to God's sovereignty, and so forth, our capacity to rejoice is raised. The ceiling of our worship increases. And then lastly, another reason that this is profoundly practical is because it deepens your appreciation of divine mercy and kindness as you realize that any good that you have is a result only of God's sovereign grace. As you understand, as you believe, as you reckon with the reality that you have earned nothing from God, you've merited nothing from God other than His wrath 
and condemnation. And therefore, any good that He gives you is simply a result of His sovereign grace. That He has overcome your innate resistance to Him. So according to Romans, which we spent uh, most of the past two years expositing together, we are transformed not by simply hoping in some sort of God of our own imagination. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds as we feast upon Scripture, which means that the only way for you to really fight pride and despair and anxiety and fear and all of these other sort of uh, inclinations of the human heart is by knowing and embracing both the love of God, but also His sovereignty and His authority over all things. So sovereignty, omnipotence, providence, these aren't just big theological concepts to show how smart we are because we know these big words. They're not just academic fodder for a sort of ivory tower debate or discussion or something like that. These are truths that profoundly and practically influence and affect every single second of every single minute of every single hour of every single day of your life. So God appoints in His sovereignty, He appoints this big fish to swallow Jonah. Now, I heard this story in Sunday school as a kid, and I always had this impression that this was God's judgment. This is God's wrath upon Jonah. This is a sign of His displeasure that Jonah's a big jerk, and so God made a big fish eat him. So I naturally assumed that if I got out of line, if I got out of order, that God would appoint a big fish to eat me or something like that. And it wasn't really until I began to study the book of Jonah that I began to realize that this fish isn't actually divine judgment. It's divine deliverance. It's divine mercy. The fish isn't a manifestation of God's wrath, but His love. Let me give you four evidences of that that we see in the text. Four evidences that this is not God's wrath that the, the, the fish would swallow Jonah, but instead His love. The first is the fish is the means by which God rescues and preserves Jonah in the midst of the sea. It might not seem like it at first, but it certainly saves him from the certainty of drowning. It was dark, it was wet, it was smelly, it was certainly unpleasant in the midst of the beast, but nonetheless it was better than death. So the fish is the means by which God would rescue and preserve Jonah as he, in the, as he is in the middle of the sea. So that's the first way that we can see that this is not a manifestation of God's wrath, but His love. A second way, the fish becomes the means by which uh, Jonah is confronted by the sovereignty, the omniscience, the omnipresence of God, which means that this seemingly unpleasant environment that he finds himself in is actually the perfect context to cultivate his worship. In trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. We talked about this a little bit. In trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, what's Jonah doing in that moment? He's questioning or he's despising the reality of, uh, of God's omniscience, of God's omnipresence. But what's interesting, in the belly of the fish, what's Jonah's only hope? His only hope is if God truly is omnipresent and God truly is omniscient. The very thing that Jonah questioned, the very thing that Jonah despised, is the very thing that he will find himself clinging to. That's his only hope in the belly of the fish. So Jonah's understanding of Yahweh increases, and thus his affections are raised, and his worship is deepened, even as we'll read in his worshipful prayer and praise next week. And given that worship 
is the reason that we even exist, this is a good thing. A third reason that this is an evidence of God's love, it's the means by which God returns Jonah to the shore and back to the mission at hand. As one pastor has said, the fish becomes the Uber, the Lyft, the Megabus for Jonah to return to Nineveh. And then lastly, this provides the necessary setting to lead the Ninevites to later repentance. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but by way of preview, in the Assyrian uh, pantheon, so Nineveh is a city in Assyria, in the Assyrian pantheon of gods was a so-called god named Dagon, or Dagon, the fish god. He's often pictured as half man, half fish, kind of like a merman or something uh, like that. So for a people who worship a fish god, the fact that Jonah was swallowed up by a big fish and then vomited out is a fairly obvious sign that the God that this guy serves is greater than our God. And so not only is Jonah's experience a sign of God's mercy to him, but also his mercy to Nineveh. You see, God doesn't wield his sovereignty. He doesn't wield his authority like a bully. He mingles it with mercy and love. And so this fish is a demonstration of sovereign grace. Now, you might be wondering, what kind of fish was this? Perhaps you've heard the story of the little girl studying wells in school, and so she decided to chime in, and she told her teacher about how a well once swallowed Jonah, and the teacher smirked and replied that it was physically impossible for a well to swallow a human because even though it was a very large mammal, its throat was very small. And so they had this few minutes of uh, intense debate, and then the little girl said, well, I'm not sure how it happened, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And the teacher replied smugly, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? And the little girl said, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) What kind of fish was it? I have no clue. No one has any clue. Let me give you a few thoughts, a couple of thoughts in particular that might help. All right, first off, don't get caught up on the whole fish versus mammal thing, all right? That's something that people get uh, caught up. It can't be a whale because a whale is a mammal, and the Bible says fish. I was introducing this story on this very stage. Uh, At one point, we had a uh, kind of a uh, inductive Bible study group come in and do something here, and so I was doing uh, an introduction, and uh, and I mentioned Jonah and uh, and the whale, and uh, and a, a, a random woman yelled out, it wasn't a whale, it was a fish. Yes, thank you, random lady who likes to publicly rebuke pastors. I realize that in our modern taxonomy of classifying animals that uh, a whale is not considered a fish, but you have to understand for the vast majority of world history, that has not been the case. In fact, in Scripture, there are no designations for different types of, uh, of fishes. And, uh, and so this word fish, depending on the context, can refer to something that we would classify as a fish, or at other times, it can just be referring to any sort of sea-dwelling creature. And, uh, and so, uh, for all we know, just based on this one word, it could have been a shark, could have been a whale, it could have been a manatee, or it could have been a giant octopus, could have been a majestic uh, narwhal, or a tuna, the chicken of the sea. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things it can be. The word itself uh, isn't going to uh, help us. We don't know what it was. We don't even know if it's a creature that's now extinct. For all we know, it's one that's already gone extinct, or it's one that God created especially for this task. What kind of fish? I don't know. I doubt Jonah even knew, right? He's simply swallowed by a fish. He's not studying it intensely. So we don't know 
And, more importantly, we don't need to know. In order to understand the story, you don't need to understand if this is a sperm whale or a blue whale or a whale shark or whatever it uh, might be. So that's the first thing. Don't get caught up on the whole fish versus mammal thing or get caught up in trying to figure out what kind of fish it was. Second, don't get caught up on the question of how Jonah survived or how he breathed. I see people get caught up on this. Maybe there's air in the belly. Maybe God constructed this elaborate system of kelp for trapping air or something like that. Who knows? Right, these kinds of questions, they're certainly interesting, uh, but they also miss the point entirely, which is that this is miraculous. If we found an animal in which this could naturally happen, then the story loses its luster. So don't go looking for natural answers to supernatural events. In other words, if you read this story and you try to figure out what particular species man could conceivably live in for three days and three nights, then you're misreading the story. The point of the story is that there is no species in which this is possible, and yet it actually happens because God is sovereign. So next week, we'll consider what happens during those three days and three nights, in particular, Jonah's humility, his contrition, his repentance, his worship, but for now, I just want to consider the significance of this reference to three days and three nights. So earlier, we mentioned the fact that Jonah is not intended as mere allegory, but it is an example of what's called typology. What is typology? Well, there's a, a definition by a guy named Graham Cole. He says, typology is the idea that persons, events, and institutions can, in the plan of God, prefigure a later stage in that plan and provide the conceptuality necessary for understanding the divine intent. In other words, what we see oftentimes in the Old Testament are shadows that prefigure or that point toward fulfillment in Christ. In other words, there are ideas, there are images that have been intentionally embedded into the Old Testament uh, by the Holy Spirit to help prepare our minds for something that's going to lead us to understand better what Christ has accomplished. So, for example, you'll see that Jesus is kind of like Moses, th that he brings about a kind of exodus, not from uh, physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery. He brings out this uh, uh, better kind of exodus, leading his people into a new and better promised land with a new and better temple, which is Christ himself. Or you'll see Jesus is like Joseph, in a sense. He's betrayed by his kinsmen. He's given over to death, but he's eventually raised to a position of authority over them. So in each of these uh, examples, you see different aspects of similarity, but also dissimilarity. There's expansion. Jesus is better. That's why we said that he is the true and better temple. He's the true and better Moses. This is the true and better Israel. Jesus is the new temple, but he's a better temple because unlike the previous temple, he's not geographically restricted and there's no need for continual sacrifices and so forth. And we inherit a promised land, but it's a better promised land than what the Old Testament nation of Israel inherited because it will be untainted by sin and there will be no enemies and it will be eternal and so forth. So we see typology in the story of Jonah as well. We talked about a number of these last week. Consider how all of these different events or aspects or nuances of Jonah's story will kind of mirror or bring attention to or remind us of something in Christ's life. Jonah leaves his homeland 
to proclaim the kingdom of God to those who are not his people. That sounds like Jesus. Jonah is asleep on a boat in the midst of a storm. That sounds like a story from Jesus. And then the tempestuous sea is suddenly calmed. Jonah's thrown overboard. He's sacrificed, in a sense, in order to appease God. Jonah is consumed for three days and three nights. Jonah proclaims the word of the Lord for 40 days, even as Jesus proclaims himself for 40 days after his resurrection. In other words, all of these are little hints. They're little whispers. They're little shadows pointing toward the greater substance fulfilled in Christ. And so in the midst of all the similarities between Jonah and Jesus, there is also this striking dissimilarity between an arrogant and self-righteous prophet who disobeys God and a humble, selfless servant who obeys his Father and is himself God. As Jesus will say in the Gospels, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That language, by the way, comes from Matthew 12. So I want to briefly look at verses 40 through 41. It might be familiar to you if you were here on Easter because this is the text we actually preached through this Easter. But Matthew 12, 40 through 41, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So here we see the greatest aspect of typology. In the book of Jonah, this three days and this three nights, within the context just of the book of Jonah, this demonstrates the supernatural, the miraculous, the sovereign, merciful provision of God. It sets the stage for what we'll talk about next week with uh, Jonah's prayerful praise. But when we read Jonah 1.17 and this reference to the three days and three nights through a kind of a typological sort of lens, then we're reminded that the Bible is not ultimately about Jonah. The Bible is not ultimately about how you can get out of that whale. It's about one who willingly entered the belly of the beast. It's about one who willingly embraced death itself so that you and I who deserve death who deserve wrath, who deserve judgment, who deserve hell, might have love and life and justification and sonship in the family of God. In other words, I care that you believe that there was a prophet named Jonah. I care that you believe that he was swallowed by a fish, that he lodged in that fish for three days and three nights, and he lived to tell the tale. That's true and important. I care that you believe that. But infinitely more than I care about that I care that you believe that the God-man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God made flesh, that He was swallowed by death, that He was entombed for three days, that He rose again victorious over sin and death, that we might live forever with Him. That's the ultimate point of this story through a typological sort of lens. So here's how I want to wrap up this morning. Again, this book and this section is not ultimately about Jonah or Nineveh, or a big fish, and it certainly isn't about you and me. It's about God. But to apply the text to our lives, it's helpful for us to consider ourselves and put ourselves in Jonah's shoes or put ourselves in the Ninevites' shoes. So maybe some of you this morning are like the Ninevites at the beginning of the story. You're content. You're comfortable. You're complacent in sin. You have no love for the true triune God. If that's you, you need to hear 
that in a short time, your refuge, your comfort, your security, your very life will be overthrown. That's the message of Jonah to those who persist in their sin. Unless you repent, unless you confess that you've loved and trusted in that which cannot save, and you throw yourself entirely upon the mercy and sovereignty of Christ. If you don't know what that means to do that, let me encourage you, ask whomever invited you or come grab a staff member or an elder. We would love to help you figure that out. But maybe that's not you. Maybe, uh, maybe you know the gospel. Maybe you already trust Christ. But you, like Jonah, are avoiding some implication of the word of the Lord. You don't like what God says about your marriage. You don't like what God says about your finances. You don't like what God says about your sexuality or parenting or church or whatever it might be. And so you're attempting to run. You're attempting to avoid. You're attempting to hide, to escape. You need to be reminded this morning of the sovereignty and authority of God and the fact that His commands are for your good, always and only for your good. So stop trying to run. Not only is it futile, to run from an omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful, sovereign God, but it's also foolish because you're running from the only source of any good and any grace and any hope and any life and any joy. Or maybe you aren't running from God, but instead you find yourself in some storm. You find yourself in some sort of big fish of suffering. If that's you, you need to be reminded of God's sovereignty and love. You need to be reminded of what Jonah experiences here, where in the belly of the fish, his uh, affections, his understanding of who God increases exponentially, and so does his worship. So you need to consider the sovereignty and the love of God. And come back next week as we consider how Jonah responds and the opportunity to worship in the midst of sorrow. But for now, let's pray, and then we'll prepare ourselves to take uh, communion. Father, I thank You for Your Word uh, this morning. I thank You for this text, this one verse that is uh, saturated with, uh, with meaning as it uh, points us to Your sovereignty, it points us to Your grace, it points us to Your love and to Your authority, and it also points us to ultimate fulfillment of all of Your promises that You've made to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that our ultimate hope would rest entirely upon Him and that we might not run from you, but run to you for joy and hope and life and love and all good things. We ask these things, as we said before, because you're a good Father who gives good gifts. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.